Good morning. Sup, Cherise. How's it going? Good, a little bit you. of a hectic morning. Well, not really. Not for you and me. It was hectic for your two house guests. Yeah. I, we, won't, we won't name names and tarnish their reputation. This is Making It Up, episode number 186, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things, and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash making for Discord access, store discounts, exclusive newsletters, and more. Let's get into it. We're recording from Eugene's home. Walk in, and there's two sleeping forms on his couch. Passed out. Totally passed out. Yeah. Last night was kind of weird because. The two friends went out and then got drunk and then they came back and we watched Ted Lasso, which is our Friday ritual. It's weird that they came back here to pass out. Well instead of their respective homes where they live. Okay, one one friend is sleeping over. Oh, because so he's in between apartments because his other spot's getting um renovated right you. now. I got you. I got you. I I thought that your friends were like the most comfortable place we can possibly choose to pass out after getting drunk is Eugene and Nicole's house. Like that's our number one choice of where to go and wake up. Hey, it's where the party's at. (laughs) (laughs) More like it's where someone will take care of me. What was that question you asked me uh, off air about kitschiness and art? Yeah, I had a student ask me this week how to avoid creating kitschy design but isn't that a byproduct of awareness i think that's what it comes down to no like someone that's really confident about their artwork but it ends up being totally culturally off base is probably someone that doesn't understand what's going on in the world or like yeah 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 yeah. i mean i think the fear comes from that their taste isn't good enough that their taste might steer them towards creating something that turns out to be kitschy and they are unaware of it um, essentially my advice, I mean, we talked a little bit about what kitschy means, but essentially I, my advice was to not worry about it. I also think that kitschiness potentially in most circumstances would actually be a little bit more protected because the work you create for your peers, unless it goes quote unquote viral and it escapes various content bubbles, it actually might just be for a demographic of peers that have maybe a similar mindset. Or because they are less life experienced, if that makes sense. Like, you know, if you're 22 years old creating artwork, like your fellow peers that are 22 years old might also not necessarily have the same sort of life experience to deem it kitschy. Yeah. I mean, kitschy, it's an interesting point of conversation because I think, one, I said that to be kitschy is to create it unintentionally. You can't call your own work kitschy usually and the other thing that it requires is people passing a taste-based judgment essentially like i don't think there is necessarily like a clear definition of 
what kitsch is because it's so taste-based, which is dependent on yeah, your audience, demographic, location, all of those things. Yeah, but anyway, my advice was like, it's better to make work and move towards what you want the work to be than to be making work in fear of what it might become, like what you are avoiding. And I don't think it's very productive. Yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying. You sometimes you have to go and do it and maybe even learn lessons. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of like being hesitant to make something because it might be something you don't want it to be. Yeah, totally. All right. I feel like you should go first. We are kind of talking about innovation in fashion, but quite different strategies. Yeah, that's fair. All right. My topic is lack of strategy is the strategy. What Comme des Garçons did next. This piece appeared in the Financial Times. What's interesting about this piece is that it's anti-finance in a way, but it obviously appeared in the Financial Times. So it's like actually showcasing how an alternative way of looking at businesses allows you to thrive, mm. which is the case of Comme des Garçons. And this piece was written by Alexander Fury. That name actually sounds familiar. May have read his stuff before somewhere else. So for those unfamiliar, Comme des Garçons is arguably the most notable fashion conglomerate with, this is actually something I dubbed on my own. Like they actually call it something else themselves later on in the article, but I call it this sort of, this company with a high degree of authentic and non-corporate directed growth, which is, I don't know why I said that. It's more that if you read between the lines, they're, built, they're basically built off of pure brand. Like they do brand related things that make sense creatively and for the brand and not necessarily things that are there to create just pure shareholder value. Yeah. Right. Which obviously when you start getting into certain worlds where things are a little bit more, how do you put this? Like you have shareholders that are asking you to increase the share price and to be more financially successful. That obviously dictates a big part of what decisions you make, which I don't think a lot of people realize this. Is that what happens when you have someone that has a financial relationship with you that's purely finance driven and not driven by the actual value created that's non-tangible? I was watching a YouTube video. It was like a humor video. It's not about fashion or finance at all. But one of the people in it said, our imagination is limited by our poverty. This is actually in Cantonese, so it's a little bit funnier in Cantonese. But yeah. anyway, I thought that was so true. And actually, that's true in what you've just pointed out, mm -hmm. which is that maybe people have a lack of understanding because not a whole lot of people are in that position yeah. to have stakeholders that you are beholden to financially and therefore influence your decisions. Yeah. And also the phase in which you have responsibility to shareholders is actually really interesting. So... You know, I've been talking to a lot of people recently and, and one thing that comes up is like when, when it comes to crypto projects, people often ask like, do you have a token or a coin? And the reality is that if you, if you dis dissect what that means, it means that if Sharice is going to launch a project and she's going to raise money through a, a token, then already she has a responsibility to the token holders or they expect some sort of responsibility that even before you've created a product, you are going to create value for them because they've invested in your product or project. Right. So that inherently changes the the relationship and mechanics of things. Right. So I think that that is actually something if in the creative world, 
managing that relationship because obviously some, uh, there's going to be times when you need money to run a business or to grow and to uh, explore and validate new new experiments and ideas but then you also need to be very conscious of like how many people you're responsible for because also what's interesting is that in a public market you're going to have people of all different walks of life like you Sharice might be someone who had a stock tip and was like hey throw all the money you have into this one project and if they lose their 500 bucks like that's actually a really big deal to them versus someone like hey you know what this is a very risky play for me i'm going to put like 0.1% of my portfolio into this so i think that's something to really be conscious of and i think i i think about that a lot too in terms of who you have to answer to and what is a relationship because i think it's also different like when it comes to like a Patreon, there's not a financial upside associated with someone supporting you per se. The upside is like, hey, I'm supporting. As in they don't consider it to be a monetary investment. Exactly. Yeah. The upside is intangible. Yeah. So that's a, that's a little bit of a. It can be more liberating. Yeah. But it, it also generates its own set of pressures, right? Like if totally, your, totally. your community requests that you do videos about trading cards and you're like hey trading cards are cool but i actually prefer to keep it more broad right i mean also the pressure can be more intangible than that as well i mean things we think about making is are we providing enough value to the community that compels them to be in the discord yeah which is a difficult thing to track yeah less more difficult <laughs> these are all things i've been like thinking about than getting your stock price to go up yeah and also, everyone has such different expectations, period. Anyways, yeah. I, that was... Uh, it, would, it is complicated in an interesting way because when it comes to money, people are interested in exactly the same thing, which is making more money. Yes. It's very cut and dry. All of your investors, whether they were high risk, low risk, 0.001%, whatever, they just want to make more money. Yeah, if I'm going to invest in Nike or Lululemon, I don't really care about the purity and goal of sport. I just yeah. want you to make me money. Right. Your interest in the purity is only in relation to that ticker going up. Yeah. yeah. So if you do something that makes money, then that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that was a bit of a tangent. Bit of a tangent. I Bring think it's still relevant. Still relevant. Though. Yeah. So aside from Comedy Garçon Play, which I think most people would agree is probably the most, it is the most commercially viable part of the business, which is, if people are unfamiliar, it's this heart logo that With is seen on, yeah, it's seen on Converse shoes, t shirts fragrance bottles, et cetera. So that's arguably something that that drives a big percentage of the overall Comme des business. I'm going to start referring to the CDG so I don't have to pronounce it. And I don't have to say it in French, although I can, but it sounds weird. I was, yeah. <laughs> the, the detail that you can say it in French is already pretentious enough. Exactly. Anyway, so CDG. Yeah. So to date, they have been working on almost like an incubator of sorts. It's housed in this uh, kind of this old famous mansion in Paris and they've called it 3537, which is basically the address in which this mansion sits. It's 35 and 37 on Rue des Francs Bourgeois. Um, so that's sort of part of this movement called the Dover Street Market Paris. I guess you call it, it's, it's a kind of like a housing of all these brands and what CDG is doing is providing them with both back and front end support to execute their brand goals. So like, for example, if Sharice is an amazing designer with great ideas, CDG's coming in and supporting them with infrastructure such as manufacturing, marketing, even retail probably because 
Comme des Garçons also has its own retail doors in Dover Street Market. Yeah, and they're stocked in the different DSMs around the world. But I think incubator is the best way to describe it. Yeah. And some of the brands that are under this current umbrella include include Vaquera, ERL, Honey Fucking Dijon, Razvet, Liberal Youth Ministry, Use in Baklava, Wineanto, and Sky High Farm. And Sky High Farm is a nonprofit which is working in the Hudson Valley in New York City, which in actuality aren't really a, a at the forefront clothing brand, but rather a merch line for a movement that is, I think, I think it's something to do with like food security. And a lot of this Financial Times piece talks about the anti-hype, anti-trend approach and vision of CDG founder Ray Kawakubo. This dates back to, man, she's been around for a while. Like several she decades. She is seventy eight. She she is seventy eight. Yeah, so she's, she's been, been at it for a minute for a large amount of her life. Yeah, I think a good way to describe CDG, especially when you have the same sort of head designer leader at the helm for so many years, I think it's extremely focused and idiosyncratic. So when I mean focused, I mean not necessarily it all looks the same so much as they've carved out individual pillars that allow them to explore creative concepts yeah right there's something almost 20 different like sub labels under under cdg yeah and i think also when you say kyle kubo and cdg is focused what comes to my mind is not that their strategy is logical to other people but that they know exactly what they want to do and how they're going to go about doing that uh, so within this overall piece, they don't actually talk to Ray. They talk to Adrian Joffe, who is the president of CDG and also life partner to Ray. And he takes a very philosophical approach towards CDG and its physical experiences, which, you know, he's talking about Dover Street Market, but I think his mindset already gives you an indication of how they look at the, the business as a whole. And this is how he describes Dover Street Markets. The social intercourse, the human touch, the vivid real-life experience, spirit and feeling and love cannot meander, let alone thrive through a computer. An online shop cannot be the cradle of knowledge, cannot nurture wisdom that discovery and exploration in person could. Incredibly powerful, makes total sense. Like This to me is the counterpoint to everyone trying to go into the metaverse, (laughs) right? You know what I mean? Like I think the metaverse has value, but I think that there's a reinforcement and creation of bonds when it's both sides interacting with one another. It's yeah. not just one or the other, but right? Also, yeah, exactly. Not just one or the other, because I was going to say that DSM does have e-commerce and they do sell totally. their products yeah. online. So I appreciate Joffe's philosophical approach, but also that doesn't mean they they're not Luddites. Yeah. yeah. It's not like they're going to write off all digital virtual interventions and selling things through the internet. Yeah. So at the very beginning I was like, I gave my own little definition on how I personally described for Joffe internally. One way he describes CDG is an alternative indie radical conglomerate, which, you know, independent for sure, like radical in the sense that they don't follow a traditional conglomerate playbook, I would say. Uh, And, you know, back to the point of the Dover Street Market Paris movement, the way they're supporting these brands is through manufacturing, sales, and press. And a lot of these people, like from the sounds of it, they weren't necessarily creating lines or, or designers with their own lines to begin with. They actually found and identified people with a good POV to go and then create their own line. Yeah, I 
read this piece and I don't know if it's because like I already like Kawakubo and Jaffe and CDG in general, so maybe I'm biased. And when I read this about CDG encouraging people who wouldn't necessarily explore fashion to make fashion items, I read it as quite a creatively encouraging thing and not like a play for retail. Like not just because that is one way you could read it that they push people towards a easily consumable product. Yeah. But my understanding of CDG and Jaffe and what he's saying is that they genuinely see fashion as a interesting creative expression for these people. Yeah. That fashion as just a type of work is worth exploring. So towards the end of the piece, the Financial Times highlights a few quotes from some people under this ongoing incubator movement. Eli Russell Lenertz said that, I think there's an honesty and humbleness and energy to what Adrian and Ray have created. Adrian has never once told me what to create and he never wants to discuss business. He just says, create what you want. That's mind boggling for somebody who's running a giant fashion empire. There's a lot of freedom. It feels like a family. These are seemingly themes that come up quite often. It's about the family aspect of CDG and how they want to build it. Like basically bringing in people together, giving them resources, treating them ethically, treating them well. Uh, and one of the other quotes, the use of Balakava speaking collectively, I assume as part of an email or something. Because it's a group. Yeah. They, they state that this is the connective thread between the eight Dover Street Market Paris designers, that it's the attitude of doing things in our own ways without giving any hoot about it and what people say. And, you know, I think that overall, when you take into account this, there seems to be a really strong loyalty play when someone empowers you, but also doesn't limit your freedom. I, I actually, over the course of the last uh, week or so, I've been doing a bunch of pre-interviews for an upcoming documentary we're working on with a network TV channel. And a lot of that pre-interview stuff has come down to freedom to create what they want to create with the support system in place. Mm. And I think that they, because of that, for creative people, that's incredibly liberating. So it's like, if Sharice wants to go create art, someone basically is supporting her to go do that. That's quite an intensive relationship that you build because I think that it's like, obviously everyone needs to pay bills, they need to put food on the table. But at the same time, like when you have the ability to pursue a true passion, I think that that passion itself that's able to expand and grow organically, I mean, it feels like something that you'll forever be indebted to somebody for. I mean, it's a huge gift is what I think. It's a gift to be given support in the form of systems, infrastructure, money, very importantly, space, and then to not have really constraining expectations yeah. placed on you um, yeah. that's just a huge windfall yeah to come across you know what's interesting is that we use the idea of an incubator and i think when i was younger i was pretty opposed to the concept of incubators because i felt like someone had to go through the process and learn the full ins and outs of doing a business by themselves and i think there's value you in you that felt like it shows weakness if you need to be incubated no, no, no. It's more that it's better for you 
in the longer term for you to like understand oh, it's better for you to be out on your own and having to deal with production manufacturing marketing on your own to know how your business runs rather than plugging into like uh an existing system however i would say that also when i was younger i thought that maybe there was like a, a belief that you needed to maintain more control and equity in mm. a in a project mm. so for example if someone comes to me like a CDG and they're like, hey, we want to get involved, but we want to take 40% of your company. Yeah, sure. Or 50%, right? I mean, what are the terms? When I was right? younger, when I was younger, I was like, oh man, that's way too much. But then now that I think of those relationships and those opportunities, you're you're de-risking yourself because you're giving the whole brand the opportunity to succeed because of the partners brought in. So in addition to that, you think that it's not like how much of the pie I keep for myself. Because like, for example, 40% is giving away a lot, but if 40% of a much larger pie means that my 60% is actually, in actuality, a much bigger overall slice or yeah, portion. Yeah, and if you had 100% and of minus like 100% the system, of like a $100,000 business or 60% yeah. of like a million dollar business. That's basically easy what I'm math. trying to get. Easy yeah, math. Easy yeah. math. Maybe because you read that quote where... Eli Russell Linnitz said it was like family. Where my mind goes is different parenting strategies because some parents globally, when their child turns 18, will say, okay, now you are a financially independent adult. You're on your own. You support yourself, pay tuition, do a part-time job, et cetera. Whereas other parents will be like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue supporting you until you don't need it anymore. Yeah. Whenever that date might be. You might be 30, 35. I will keep giving you a roof over your head and, you know, tuition, et cetera. You pay me back or you not, you don't, yeah. right? And I kind of think of it as similar to that. I mean, obviously parenting is more complicated, yeah. I think, because it's, yeah, emotionally involved. But <sighs> would you say now that one is better than the others or that they're just different, like incubator versus not, or, you know, earlier being set out on your own versus continuing to have, a system like for place. me i think that they one thing that's really important that i also recognize now as i get older is that anything you start doesn't need to be the only thing you ever do in your life mm. right so when i was younger i was like that's why i think i was so adamant about protecting a bigger piece of it because like this is going to be my thing mm. but now as i get older i look at the whole thing as part of a creative journey you starting a brand at 22 or 25 is most likely going to be a moment in your creative journey. So in reality, understanding what experiences you pull from that will allow you to, to be set up for the next opportunity. Mm. So in this capacity, like actually going under CDG as a 22-year-old, starting your brand and learning how they do it and how to professionalize it, then allows you to go and maybe start another brand when you're 32. And that all allows you to succeed without necessarily needing the incubation safety net. Right. Yeah. So it's 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 so fascinating now because we're at a point in time where, you know, we've talked about this before, the Packy McCormick uh cooperative economy, right? That's exactly it. Where as you start collecting, I don't say collecting in terms of like the game, but like to the experiences you get professionally and uh creating, what you what you're able to do is take that and then apply it into new opportunities that come that will inevitably come if you're passionate and you continue doing a good job. I think that I don't want to like say that passion solves everything, but I obviously people recognize 
those that create with regularity and passion sometimes plays a portion plays yeah. a role in that. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't interpret what you were saying as passion solving everything. I, I am of the same attitude that whatever you do does not have to be the one and only time that that thing happens. And I think same for you. Like when I was younger, I thought this setup has to be perfect because this is my one time shot yeah. at getting this right, whatever that is, whether yeah. that's like making a company yeah. or doing a project, et cetera. But the reality turns out to be you, most people, if you're fortunate, um, you get to keep going and trying out new things and doing it in a different yeah. approach. So, any final thoughts on the way Joffe and Kawakubo run CDG? Anything you're going to steal from their strategy? Their what did it, what was it? Well, I mean, less strategy is a strategy. Lack of strategy is a strategy. I think that you need to be set up in a certain way that allows you to make these types of business decisions. So, if there was no Comme des Garcons playing, I highly doubt this strategy would be even a possibility, right? Totally so fair. Basically, it's, it's many, many years of work exactly. that has gotten them to this point. Another another thing is that like I was in this sort of documentary that we're we're doing in the pre-interviews, there it is in some ways touches upon COVID. And for some of these people, like, you know, they themselves didn't endure the most challenging times during COVID because they had spent so much time and effort over the years building up a brand, building up uh, a platform where people wanted to support them. So like, obviously there's a different story between someone who's been running something for 10 years and someone who is starting something right in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. Right. So it's like, you can't really say like, Oh, you guys have it easy. Well, they put in some sort of work 10 years earlier and started incubating, creating their own opportunity so that they were able to weather a storm. Yeah. So I think that's just something that's the reality of it. Mm. Out you know, of our control, right? Yeah. Because it's also- It was in their about- control in the sense that they like, regardless of whether there was a pandemic, they were just like trying their best to build something of meaning. And it just so happened that it provided them a massive pedestal. I don't say pedestal in a pejorative or like negative way. They just like were elevated. Foundation? Yeah. Well, I just mean out of our control in the sense, I don't know the exact people you're talking to, but if you were 20 during the pandemic versus if you were 40, yeah. not that I'm not trying to be ageist, but in order to have a 10 year history, you also have to have been of a certain age at which you could start something. There's a very, very rare 10 year old who has started a company at the age of 10 and, you know, had that runway before the pandemic yeah. hit. So that's the bit that was out of our control. Enough about that. Interestingly enough, our second half of this podcast is still fashion related, but in, I would say, a distinctly different direction, type of innovation. So my subject this week comes from an article published in Vogue Business, written by Megan McDowell, titled, Influencers are wearing digital versions of physical clothes now. I love this. Piece. Yeah. This is great. This is great. Because it's actually directly relevant to some stuff that we've been doing. What is this? Like a sneak peek Eugene's no, business No, no. This is more like, just like... no. dropping hints about all the no, things No, no. This is like stuff at. that we have to do for clients. And sometimes you have to present next season's ideas. And what you do is you mock up the product on uh, how it'll look like in next season's advertising campaigns. Right. And because you haven't shot anything, 
you're just kind of combining. It's not ideal because you don't have customized models slash people like posing in a certain way. It's more like found imagery with Photoshop. with a shoe that we've shot on a white background that's then put on top and imposed. And sometimes like shout out to our boy Dustin, but like sometimes you look at it and you're like, man, this is it. Like we don't even have to shoot this next season because it actually <laughs> looks pretty good. Okay. Um, let me tell folks a little bit more about the facts of this or what is happening right now currently. This article begins by talking about Vice's creative agency Virtue and how in 2019 they started pitching digital fashion ideas to emerging brands. They helped a Scandinavian retailer named Carlings sell out of a digital clothing collection in a week. So in that case, digital clothing collection would really be consumers purchasing digital fashion items. Turns out um, an interesting direction that brands have gone in is not so much in creating digital fashion collections, though that does exist. We can talk about it a little bit more later. Uh, instead, quite a few of them are interested in employing digital fashion technology strategy for the marketing side of things when it comes to seeding in particular and working with influencers. I like hate that part in a, in a sense because it's there's no real authenticity around like this person didn't actually care about it. They were just used as a vehicle, which they, they are. Don't get me wrong. They're just used as a vehicle. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of pros and cons. On one hand, yes, there's a con here where brands are like, just not interested in a more high concept of digital fashion collections and how they might create whole lines that are digital rather than physical. So that kind of bums me out that they're not so interested in doing that. But the big pro that I see is a reduction in the resources you spend and money and an improvement when it comes to sustainability if you use digital fashion for at least for seeding, right? So a couple more things that is a pro that both brands see and agencies see, which is that consumers can see products further in advance. So kind of what you were saying about working with clients is that, I mean, I know yours is internal, but yeah. in theory, before the product, whatever it is, uh, accessory or jacket or shoe, whatever, is even manufactured, if you have the render, then you can do marketing. So if you can do marketing that far in advance, then you can actually make adjustments before you spend anything on materials. And on top of that, development. one thing that's always been a big issue is waste. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, your that's inability why to I get predict, so excited about this. Your inability to predict your inability to predict supply and demand, right? You're not gonna make a product that flops and then be sitting on warehouses full of products nobody wants exactly and potentially there's the opportunity for you to just do pre-sales etc totally totally some other appeal for brands is that you can actually potentially dress your influencers better because traditionally you might only be producing a certain number of sizes for sampling and seeding and i mean i'm not saying this is a very optimistic way of looking at digital fashion items in seating but you could in theory work with a wider range of people what well, basically what i'm saying is you can work with people of different sizes because you aren't constrained by whatever sample sizes you made and what's also interesting is that the way that i'm putting my sort of like 
production hat on is that Sharice, uh, so on the article, I think one of the articles actually had one of the influencers or models, they had a, like a bootleg, like, like green green screen sort of like dot thing. Like they put dots yeah, yeah, right yeah. on their clothing yeah, so yeah. that for the rendering process would be easier. And what you're now doing is that taking that into account, you can go and create uh, a ton of maybe difficult to achieve movements. Yep. And or like if someone's, especially like sometimes influencers aren't models. Yeah, it's actually yeah, really important. True. It's like you can just have them like shoot it more casually without uh, a day of where you only have eight hours to capture everything. So that's one thing. Number two is sometimes shooting outdoors, you run into the risk of mother nature, like not cooperating. Yeah. So now it's like, oh, you know what? This is a lot easier for you to manage. You sidestep a lot of potential challenges with shooting with physical items. Yeah. Yeah. And Video not, is a little bit tougher. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, but that's true. Photos is yeah. a little bit easier. And to give people a bit of a look into how this works, this month, Farfetch, which is a very large retailer, put digital sampling into practice with a couple of different pre-order offerings from brands including Balenciaga, Palm Angels, Off-White, etc. There's a whole list of them. And they are working with this platform called Dress X that works on digitizing the garments and creates 3D renders. Mm-hmm. And it, sounds, it sounds complicated, yeah. but yeah. for listeners, essentially, this is like really elaborate Photoshop. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's more, it's more, there's more detail. I'm not knocking these people's work. Like, I'm sure it is quite intensive, but essentially the result is being able to create images that appear as though the models are wearing the clothing. Yeah. You basically, even for DressX, like outside of this relationship, you can go on their site, buy a digital garment. Oh. And then upload your photo and they'll Photoshop it on top. Yeah. One thing that I'm interested in, you know, having said all of this stuff about how this works and this being kind of on the come up is the branding side of this type of engagement or this type of marketing. And in this Vogue business article, they talk about how the brands really want to make it clear that they are using this technology. So mm-hmm. it's kind of funny because like if you made an ad with Photoshop, you would never say like made with Photoshop, right? Or whatever it is, whatever software you use. But in this case, they really want people to know that garments have been digitally created. And on one hand, it's a bit of a sustainability play so that they can say that their brand has taken into consideration environmental damage, et cetera, is a big deal for fashion brands to appear to be aware of this and doing things to fix it. And then on the other hand, I think it communicates to a certain consumer that the brand is relevant and cutting edge. Yeah. Right. I mean, for me, it's one thing for you to do it in a very practical sense, but I think that that is maybe a starting point but afterwards how do you start integrating this to create opportunities that otherwise wouldn't be possible Mm. so off the air i showed you some examples of these mock-ups and some of the shots like maybe you do it physically it'd be actually very difficult or impossible to do yeah so like that i think is starting to push the realm of creativity where you start to really think like actually i can communicate things a little bit differently but also you're leveraging the technology to tell enhanced stories and angles I mean, maybe I'm I'm thinking too much with like some bullshit marketing angle, but that's kind of how I see it. Is like, what are things that I would not be able to do otherwise? But because I can leverage rendering, 
I can create new forms of visuals. I think it's pro pro mostly like, yeah, there's the practical reasons why a brand might use this technology, which you wouldn't have to disclose to consumers anyway, like just simply reducing the logistics of sending items like that might be appealing enough. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah, like you called the bullshit marketing. Like I'm not opposed because I guess personally, I have the bigger agenda of hoping there is like a mass adoption of digital fashion mm -hmm. and that our identity creation through fashion can come through digital items. Can you now talk about your Fortnite Balenciaga experience? Yes. Well, not really Balenciaga, just Fortnite in general. Well, I mean, there's a little bit of Balenciaga in there. So if you are a Macon Patreon member, then you will have received the Macon Briefing newsletter where I wrote about this in the intro, started playing some Fortnite a couple weeks ago, and then realized that Eugene has been more right than I thought about the rise of virtual fashion. And that's because I very viscerally felt it myself as a player. After playing a couple of rounds, I, I genuinely did feel bored with my outfit, which is weird. It shouldn't matter. It really shouldn't. Like I feel silly even saying that out loud. But now when I play, having played for a couple of weeks now, I think I would really like to look different. <laughs> In all fairness, the skins are pretty cool. They like are they cool. do a great job of like creating are, something I dynamic. I look at what other people are wearing and I actually think, oh, that's really sick. Yeah. Like I I guess like part of this, like I said, in the intro as in the newsletter intro is like, oh, it's so subjective. Like I look at these outfits and I think like, oh, that's pretty cool. Like I like that effect just on like a visually pleasing way. And then there is another layer to this where I get excited about the fact that we might be moving towards um, those associative feelings we get from wearing physical items. We can get it virtually mm -hmm. without having to consume physical, tangible items. Yep. Yeah. So the Balenciaga yep. bit, um, just so people know what's going on, is that Balenciaga released a digital collection on Fortnite. What is sad to me is that they also released a physical collection in conjunction with the digital collection. Like I think it could have been more interesting if they just went digital, but I guess brands are not quite that radical yet to reuse wow. Adrian Johnson. I'm actually word. really surprised at the speed in which it's sold out. The physical items. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, because the digital ones don't sell out. Right now they don't, yeah. But they could in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of weird, I guess. But you know what that indicates, though, is that even though me and you are sitting here and saying we would like to see people move towards just a digital representation of themselves, there are clearly a lot of people that still care very much about the, the physical thing that they put on their back and that they actually do want the $475 white Fortnite Balenciaga hoodie. Yeah. That's what yeah. it says, right? It says that even though us two think like this is where we're headed, many, many, many people are not there or don't ever want to be there. They like things the way they are. Yeah. yeah, for me, I think that's about it. My conclusion is really it is nice to see technology reach a point where more brands can do this accessibly 
can consider doing this. And on top of that, the promotional aspect of how regular consumers are going to be influenced into enjoying and appreciating digital fashion items. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. I think it's quite revelational when you can go and get that same feeling from clothing, but digitally in your digital environment. I mean, you're in a position to actually put this into practice as well. Yeah. Okay. Good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>